Okay, in this class, we're going to focus specifically on skin, soft tissue, and nail pathology. All of these conditions are conditions you're very likely to encounter in clinical practice. So let's talk first about disorders of the sweat glands. So there's hyperhidrosis, anhydrosis, and bromhidrosis. I tell you one thing you have to say about foot and nail care, there is a ton of terminology. So you'll spend a lot of time just trying to be sure you're clear on all these terms. Once you understand what they're asking you, frequently the answer is fairly straightforward. All of these involve the sweat glands. So hyperhidrosis, of course, is excessive sweating. Um, and then the big deal is your feet are always wet, so you're high risk for fungal infection and for fissure formation. So you're trying to keep the skin drier. S standard strategies include using antiperspirants on your feet. It works, so spraying your feet with antiperspirants, using absorbent powders, so all those foot powders, that's who they're for and cotton socks. Anhydrosis is really more common. We see a lot of this. This is where we have reduced sweating, very dry, scaly skin, sometimes thick cracks in the skin. We see this a lot in our elderly patients and we see it frequently in our diabetic patients because of autonomic neuropathy. Fissures are a common issue. So fissures, of course, deep cracks in the skin. If the crack extends down past the epidermis into the underlying um, dermal tissue, then it's a clear pathway for bacteria. So fissures can be very problematic. In some patients, fissures are very painful. So we're always trying to prevent both hyperhidrosis and anhydrosis. I shouldn't say prevent, I should say manage effectively. So with anhydrosis, that very dry cracked skin, we've talked about this in previous classes. You might need to use vinegar water soaks just to get rid of a lot of the dry scaly skin. Beyond that, we're using humectants and humectant emollient combinations. But remember, it's humectants that attract water and hold water in the skin layer. So it's usually urea-based products, petrolatum-based products that we use for people with very dry skin. We're telling them, apply this after bathing, apply it at night, and then put socks on and go to bed and hopefully you'll get good penetration overnight. So hyperhidrosis and hydrosis, the big issue is fissure formation and the resultant risk for infection. Bromhidrosis is much more problematic from the patient's perspective. With bromhidrosis, you get overgrowth of bacteria and you get smelly feet. That's basically what bromhidrosis is smelly feet. And of course, anytime you have hyperhidrosis, you've got those wet, damp feet all the time, you're pretty high risk to progress to bromhidrosis where they're not only wet, they stink. So what can you do about that? 
Bathe routinely with antibacterial soap. That keeps bacterial counts low. Use the antiperspirants and the powders, as we mentioned, under hyperhidrosis. And then when you're in the drugstore, the grocery store, look for products that say bromi this, bromi that, because bromi means malodorous feet. So there are a number of products. There's powders that are, that are labeled that. If that's not enough, then we need to refer the patient to a podiatrist, and there are some prescription products that they can prescribe, like Formidon, um, that will actually shut down the sweat glands. So for us, we're always looking for overly wet feet, overly dry feet, and complaints about smelly feet. And we're providing appropriate counseling to the patient. The only patient who usually needs referral is the patient who has persistent bromhydrosis. Now we were talking about fissures. That's the big deal because if you have a deep fissure and it extends past the intact skin surface into the deeper um, layers, then it's a portal of entry for bacteria. You can get infection. So what can we do other than counseling the patient regarding, say, vinegar water soaks and appropriate use of humectants and moisturizers? What else can we do? Well, one thing we can do is we can pair. So if you have a deep fissure, so you have thick, dry skin, and a fissure right in the middle, like you see here, then you can pair the thick, dry skin around the fissure. You can kind of flatten that fissure out so it's not such a crevice. You can teach the patient to routinely use a pumice stone or an emery board to keep that fissure filed down. And then, of course, using the humectant or humectant emollient combination. But always you're trying to limit the, back, the places for bacteria to essentially hide and replicate. And you're trying to maintain intact skin. So you're, you always intervene if there is a fissure. And you teach the patient what to do in between. You will see blisters. Blisters occur as a result of repetitive friction and shear. So you're constantly rubbing against the surface of the skin and you end up separating layers of the skin with fluid accumulation in between. And almost always blisters occur because of poorly fitting footwear. So you've probably all had blisters on your heels or blisters on the side of your foot, or sometimes blisters on the plantar surface where you got repetitive friction. If you're a runner, you've probably dealt with this a lot. And a very common question in wound care is, well, what do we do about blisters? Should we leave them alone? Should we open them up? In general, the current thinking is if you have a small fluid-filled blister, leave it alone allow the fluid to reabsorb, maintain that layer of intact skin because it provides a bacterial barrier. But if you have a large blister, a very tense blister, or a blood-filled blister, 
usually the best thing to do is to unroof the blister, drain the fluid, and then dress the resulting wound. Now, if you have areas exposed to friction, if you have um, intact blisters, how are you gonna dress those areas? Because most of the time, the person can't just sit around until the blister has resolved. They still need to wear their shoes, go to work, whatever. So typically, we will use either a transparent adhesive dressing, a solid gel dressing, a silicone adhesive foam dressing, any of those would work. So you could put them over a blister on the heel, on the planner surface, wherever you're having a problem, and you would have provided a layer of protection. You also need to address the problem with the footwear and make sure that the footwear is fitting correctly and is no longer causing excessive friction. If it's a very small blister, you might be able to just use a liquid skin barrier like Skin Prep or Cavalon or something like that, but it would have to be very small and flat. Most of the time, you need a dressing. So think about solid gel dressings, think about hydrocolloid dressings, think about transparent adhesive dressings or adhesive foams. And that's exactly what we're talking about um, on those bottom two bullet points. What are your options for dressing these wounds? And that's one reason that there are a lot of questions about wound care and wound management on the certification exam, because you are gonna get these wounds. So here you're either dealing with a patient who has an intact blister and you need to provide protection in the way of a dressing, or you have a blister that you had to unroof, and now you have an open wound, and you need a dressing that will absorb drainage and provide protection. So again, that's why you have your choices, and that's why you need to know wound care as well as foot and nail care. Now callus, we've talked a little bit about callus already. You know that callus represents thickening of the skin. It's a defense mechanism of the skin in response to repetitive friction. So callus is a warning sign. This area is being exposed to repetitive friction. If you don't intervene, you're gonna end up with an ulcer in this area. And those of us in wound care have seen this many times. You probably already know callus can be either hard or soft. Typically, the outer layer of callus is hard. The inner layer is soft. Calluses can be located on the plantar surface. Very common to find them over the metatarsal heads, over the heels. But they can also occur on the sides of the feet, and they can occur between the toes. The big question for you, of course, is what do I do about it? So first of all, you want to address the cause. What is causing the repetitive friction? Do I need to send you to an orthotist to get inserts so that you're not getting repetitive friction and shear over the metatarsal heads, over the heel? Secondly, I have to take down the callus. So 
We can pare or file the callus using a rasper, using a scalpel, using a file. So if it's generalized callus, not terribly thick, a lot of times we'll use a file, an emery board, a pumice stone. But if it's very thick or localized, typically we'll use a scalpel or a sharp curette or a rasper. Also, humectants. When you have generalized callus, remember you need humectants to soften the skin. Now, if you look at the illustration on bottom, that's not generalized callus, that's a very localized callus, right over a single bony prominence, typically a single met head. And that's officially known as an intractable plantar keratoma but really it's just a localized callus. But you have very well demarcated edges. You frequently have a very deep center. So you're gonna pare it down. Many times you can use the tip of the scalpel to kind of lift the center out. And then you're gonna focus on correcting the cause. This isn't anything the patient can do much about in between except focus on correcting any issues with footwear. Make sure if an insert is recommended that they use that consistently. Corns, exactly the same thing as callus. The only difference in corns and callus, calluses is where they're found. So corns are located on top of or between the toes whereas calluses are most commonly located on the plantar surface or the sides of the feet. I don't know why they gave them two different names, but they did, so just be aware of that. Um, management's gonna be exactly the same. You're gonna pair the corn, um, or if it's a very small corn, you might be able to file it or buff it. In my clinical experience, pairing is much more comfortable to the patient. When I start to file, it's usually very sensitive. So even smaller corns, I typically manage by pairing, either with my scalpel or with a sharp curette. I typically use a scalpel, but others use the sharp curette. And then you have to think, okay, now how do I keep this from happening again? Because if you look at the bottom, if you look at either one of them, but look especially at the bottom, those soft corns between toes, they're very, very painful. These drive people crazy. So how can you keep that from happening again? Well, you're gonna look at toe sleeves, and we're gonna, I'm gonna show you toe sleeves um, in a later class. You can get gel toe sleeves or foam toe sleeves, and they literally just fit over the toe and keep the toes from rubbing against each other, which is the source of the corn. So toe sleeves are great. You can also take a little piece of moleskin and wrap that around to stop the friction, anything that will stop the friction. Now you also need to look at their footwear because if it's on the top of the toe, you need a deeper toe box. If it's um, between the toes, you just need to be sure that the toe box is wide enough that you're not getting toes compressed against each other and rubbing. 
And obviously, it's critical to make sure the patient's drying well between the toes so that you don't get uh, maceration and increased friction. Now, I wanted to mention plantar warts because they look very much like callus, and we actually frequently manage them very much like callus. But this is actually a viral lesion. It's also known as Veruca vulgaris. And one thing that helps you differentiate between a callus and a plantar wart is if you look closely, you'll see those little black dots throughout the surface, and those represent capillaries. So this isn't just dead skin. This is a living viral lesion. Now, I've had many people who just wanted me to pare it down. They're like, the only thing that bothers me is how thick it is. If you can just pare it down, I'll be fine. Yes, we can do that. We can pare it down. But definitive treatment requires referral to podiatry. So just be aware that when you see those black dots, it means it's a viral lesion and not a callus. Fungal infections are the most common problem associated with the skin of the feet and between the toes. This is also known as tinea pedis. You will see it over and over again. You can have chronic tinea pedis. You can have acute tinea pedis. The risk factors are pretty much the same. As we age, we apparently grow more tolerant to fungal organisms and our immune system becomes less likely to destroy them. So aging, simply the process of aging, makes you higher risk for fungal infections. It's like your immune system's like, oh, he's not really that dangerous. I mean, he might cause a rash, but no big deal. So aging's a risk factor. Diabetes is a risk factor because of hyperglycemia and because of the negative impact of hyperglycemia on white blood cell function. Wet feet for obvious reasons. So people who have hyperhidrosis are higher risk. People who fail to dry well between the toes are higher risk. People who wear shoes that trap moisture and they don't wear socks, higher risk. And anyone who's immunosuppressed. Now, acute and chronic tinea pedis present differently. So chronic is what you see on the top. It involves the sides and the soles of the feet. You have all of these little circular dry flaking lesions. So the entire surface, plantar surface, can be dry and flaking, but it's clear that you see these little circular lesions. So it's clear that this is a rash underneath. But typically, if you have chronic tinea pedis, it's less troublesome to the patient. They're not typically having tenderness. They might or might not complain of some itching. Many do not. Acute tinea pedis is very different. It causes acute tenderness, a lot of itching, burning, fissure formation. So if you look at the uh, two bottom photos, those are acute. 
and you see the big difference in the way that acute tinea and chronic tinea present. Management's essentially the same. So do we want to soak their feet if they have a fungal infection? No. Do we want any kind of emollients between the toes? No. Is it okay to just dry, kind of dry off the bottoms of your feet and just let between your toes kind of air dry? No. Moisture is your enemy. So you wanna make sure the patient's drying well between the toes, drying the feet thoroughly after bathing, no soaks, no sticking your feet in shoes without socks. You're trying to avoid trapped moisture. The primary management is an antifungal spray that should be used once or twice a day for three to four weeks. So we tell our patients, go to Walmart, go to CVS or Walgreens or the grocery store or whatever, and go to the first aid aisle and the foot care aisle, and you're looking for something that says athlete's foot, treats athlete's foot. And the best form you can get is the spray on, it, it goes on like a liquid and dries like a powder. So that's better than the powder. The powder tends to clump. Creams, um, they might not work the cream in well enough and then it can just attract more moisture. You definitely don't want an ointment because it's gonna trap moisture. So the very best is the spray-on powder. And it can be generic, it doesn't have to be name brand, but it should say that it treats athlete's foot. That's what you're looking for. Now, if they treat with the antifungal spray and then stick their feet back in the same shoes they were wearing, especially if they were wearing them without socks, they'll just reinfect. So they either need to replace their shoes or treat their shoes with an antifungal. Replacement would be far the better. Psoriasis, you're not nearly as likely to see. I'll just mention it briefly. You're all familiar with psoriasis at other um, part, on other parts of the body. But again, if you have psoriasis affecting the feet, you're gonna have plaque formation. And it can either be kind of the classic plaques like you see on the top that looks just like psoriasis we see on someone's arm or scalp or whatever, or you can get this yellow-gray callus with deep fissures that's also known as psoriatic uh, keratoderma. I'm not sure I've ever seen that. I've definitely seen the psoriatic plaque. So just be aware that especially if your patient has a history of psoriasis, they can get psoriatic lesions on the feet. And of course, our default is always, if I see something that I don't recognize, I don't know what it is, or if I think I know what it is and I treat it and it doesn't get better, I send you to podiatry because they're going to be able to do definitive workup and diagnosis. Now you might um, see a nevus, a mole on the foot. You might see malignant melanoma. So we just wanted to differentiate. You know that a benign nevus, a pigmented nevus or a mole 
can be flat or raised, but you always have defined margins. So usually circular or slightly oval. Important to realize that moles vary in color, just like melanoma does. So it can be flesh colored, it can be dark brown, and you don't need to treat it, you just monitor it. So if you have someone who comes in, you think I'm pretty sure that's just a mole, it doesn't look scary, well-defined margins, but I'm gonna make a note of it. I'm gonna indicate where it is and the size and the color and I'm gonna bring this person back and make sure that it's not changing or growing. So malignant melanoma, of course, you know, ABCD, so you have asymmetrical lesions, you have irregular borders, you have variable coloration. It's a lesion that's enlarging. And of course, it requires immediate referral. Bottom line, if in doubt, refer. If you're like, I'm just not sure, much better to refer and have them say, no, 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 it's okay, than to just sit around for six months and then have someone with a very serious issue. Now again, you might not see this, you might not have questions. A lot of this depends on where you are, what your patient population looks like. Also depends on what exam you get. I have had these questions. Um, even though I've never seen these wounds because I'm in the South. So, cold injuries. Chilblain is also known as pernio. And that's what you see um, in the top two. Um, and it's mild to moderately severe. The patient's going to recover. Um, you just had these reddish purple blotches on the toes. They burn and sting and itch and are miserable, but they resolve and all you need to do is keep them in warm footwear so they don't sustain any more cold injury and just tell them it's going to get better, it's going to be okay, I know it's miserable right now. Frostbite, totally different. So frostbite is severe um, cold injury. This is where literally the soft tissues have frozen and you end up with purple black blisters and they progress to eschar and that progresses to tissue loss. And once the tissue's frozen, even though you follow rewarming and everything, or they follow rewarming when the person first comes into the emergency department, a lot of that tissue will be lost. You can't fix it. From our perspective, this is primarily a wound care issue, not a foot and nail issue. We wait it out. We wait until the necrotic tissue clearly demarcates and separates, and then we provide wound care to the open wound. Okay, so the last thing we're gonna talk about is we're gonna talk about pathologic conditions of the nails themselves. So we've been talking about the skin and soft tissue of the feet. Now we're gonna talk about the nails. And again, some of these are just terms that you want to be able to recognize, know what it means, know when it matters and when it doesn't. And where all these terms came from, 
Onico, of course, means um, nail. So onychorexis is parallel grooves that occur from the base to the tip of the nail. Um, you end up with thin, ridged nails. We might see this in patients who have lower extremity arterial disease because of the chronic ischemia. We might see it in our much older population because of diminished perfusion uh, to the nail bed. Sometimes you see it in one or two nails because there's been damage. Somebody dropped something really heavy on their foot and damaged the matrix on one or two nails. If you see more ridges and pitting like you see on the second slide down, that typically is seen with psoriasis. So if you see the parallel grooves with thin ridge nails, it's usually diminished blood flow or damage to the nail matrix. If you see ridges and pitting, it's usually due to psoriasis, nothing really to be done. Bose lines are transverse lines. That's what you see third slide down. And again, nothing to be done, but people will frequently say, why do I have those lines? What does that mean? Well, the Bose lines, the transverse lines, mean that the patient has been very ill at periods of time, and during that acute illness, nail production has stopped because the body was overwhelmed. So when I've seen Bose lines in clinical practice, if I've said to the patient, tell me about the last six months to a year. Have you had any major illnesses? Have you been in the hospital? And always, when I've seen Bose lines, they could say, oh yeah, I was really sick. Um, I had cancer, had to have chemo, I was in the hospital this long or whatever. I'm like, that's why you have those lines. That line means that your body stopped making you nail for a period of time and then started back up when you recovered. Onychoschisia just means that the nail is splitting at the distal edge, usually because the nail's overhydrated or it's been exposed to chemicals or sometimes just because of advanced age. And the way I remember that one is schizophrenia is sometimes associated with split personality and here we have a split nail in case it helps. Okay. Hypertrophic nails and onychogryphosis. Yes, you need to know both of these. You will see many, many clients with hypertrophic nails, which just means the nail plate has become very thickened. The most common reason for thickening of the nail plate, thickening of the nail plate, is a fungal infection. But it has major implications for care because when you have this very hypertrophic nail, very thick nail, you can't just trim the nail. It's way too thick for that, so you have to thin it first, either with an electric grinder, with a coarse emery board. There are also some surfactant agents called three-way that you can use to help thin the nail um, before you try to clip it. So. Whenever you see hypertrophic nails, you think, okay, first then, then clip. And if it's a fungal infection, you have to take it a step further and think how to treat that, and we'll come back to that. Now, on the bottom, if you look especially at the great nail, 
that is, in common terminology, a ram's horn nail. But the official term is onychogryphosis. So what you have here is um, thick, discolored nails that are elongated and frequently curved toward the other nails. And we see this in populations who have had no access to nail care and can't provide their own. So the elderly, um, sometimes the homeless population. I had a gentleman in the hospital and the nurses were like, I know y'all don't usually do nails, but can you at least look at this? And he had multiple ram's horn nails. And I'm like, oh, I, no, I will do something about this. And when I was talking to him, he told me that he always did his own nail care until he had a stroke. And then he didn't have the coordination or the mobility to get to his nails and to clip them. And he had no one to help him. And so for the past 18 months, nobody had done anything to his nails. And he was so incredibly grateful that someone was going to do something. So this is a sign of neglect. And again, you'll need to thin the nails before you trim them. Clubbing, this is a condition of the nail plate. You probably won't see this. It's excess uh, curvature of the nail from front to back, so it literally looks like little clubs. I used to see this a lot when I took care of kids with congenital heart disease because this is caused by chronic hypoxia. I rarely see it now. I have seen it um, occasionally in people with just severe um, chronic lung conditions, cystic fibrosis or whatever, but probably won't see that. Coilonychia, probably won't see this. I have seen it, but not frequently. These are spoon-shaped nails. So the nail um, plate is very adherent to the nail bed in the center, but on the edges, it curves up, and that looks like a spoon, like you see on the bottom slide and the middle slide. So that can be due to age, it can be due to softening of the nail, sometimes to reduce perfusion, nothing really to be done. Um, you just follow the free nail border in trimming. Now, some of the conditions on this slide are very significant. So if you look at the slide on top, those are known as C-shaped nails for obvious reasons, or sometimes they're referred to as tile-shaped nails. So you should know that term. It just means that the nerve, sorry, the nails curve down at the edges. So you can see in the slide at the top, it almost looks like the nail is compressing the uh, toe pad because it's curving down on each side. Usually it's symmetrical, so you see it on both sides. I see it most in the great nail, but you can see it in any or all of the nails. And the significance is that once the nail assumes that shape, that tile shape or C shape, this person's at increased risk of ingrown nails. Doesn't mean they have ingrown nails, but it's a risk factor for ingrown nails. 
So you would always carefully assess for ingrown nails. And you can see that here, the clinician was packing on both sides to prevent ingrown nails. Now, a trumpet or pincer nail is different. With the trumpet nail, the pincer nail, it's the free nail border. It's the distal component of the nail that curves under and it can compress the underlying skin. So you can see that very clearly in the slide. You just have to be very careful when trimming to follow the nail so that you don't damage the soft tissue but it's not likely to produce an ingrown nail because the portion affected is the free nail border and it's past the point where it would cause a problem with the lateral nail folds. Onychocryptosis is the official term for ingrown nail. It's caused typically by deformity of the nail matrix that causes those C-shaped or tile-shaped nails. But the bottom line is with onychocryptosis, with ingrown nails, the nail curves down into the soft tissue on the side. Like we said, could be because of um, a deformity of the nail matrix, could be because of tight footwear, pinching the uh, toe around the nail, could be because the nail got torn and now you have a, a sharp edge that cuts down into the tissue. But no matter what causes it, when you have an ingrown nail, you have to treat any infection and then you have to lift the ingrown portion, trim the ingrown portion, file the ingrown portion, and consider packing. And we'll come back to that. Okay, so more detail on ingrown nails. Um, they're acutely painful, very difficult. I always feel really bad for people with ingrown nails, and they make those of us in foot and nail care a little nervous in terms of, am I going to be able to get this out without hurting this person, that kind of thing. So, Again, what is it? The lateral edge of the nail has split. It's penetrated, grown into the adjacent skin. It causes an acute inflammatory response, sometimes causes infection. Pretty common, 20% of the population, um, adolescents and older adults are at greatest risk. I've seen it most commonly in the great nail, and statistically, it's most likely to affect the great nail. But as you see here, it can affect any nail. Risk factors, we want to prevent ingrown nails if we can. So improper nail trimming is one. I want to make absolutely sure I do not leave any sharp edges behind. So when I'm trimming the nail, it's very important for me to get my nippers all the way past the nail I'm gonna clip so that I'm not biting into the nail. Very important to smooth the edge with an emery board so I don't leave sharp edges behind. So we need to make sure we're following appropriate guidelines in trimming the nails. We need to strictly avoid tearing, splitting the nail 
So be very careful for the, about that. Other potential contributing factors, some of these we've met, we have mentioned, um, repetitive trauma, typically caused by tight shoes. Pushing against the lateral nail folds, pushing against the nail. Um, obesity is a risk factor, possibly just because of greater weight against the foot and the nail is the only thing I can think. And we've already said tile-shaped nails or C-shaped nails. So tearing of the nails, any trauma to the nail, improper trimming, tight shoes, C-shaped nails. As foot and nail care nurses, what we can do is we can lift, trim, file, and pack. But if that's not enough, if the person develops recurrent ingrown nails, if we're unable to get the ingrown nail out without causing the individual pain, we send them to a podiatrist who can do surgical avulsion of the nail, a gutter split. Now, perinicchia is frequently associated with ingrown nails, onychocryptosis. Perinicchia is inflammation or infection of the nail folds. And it can be a result of trauma to the cuticle that results in bacterial and fungal invasion. It could be because you had an ingrown nail that penetrated the soft tissue and left that soft tissue vulnerable um, to bacterial invasion. So those are the most common causes, ingrown nails or cuticle damage. Practically everyone I've seen with perinicchia has either had an ingrown nail that caused soft tissue trauma infection and infection, or they've had cuticle damage that caused bacterial invasion and infection. Um, if they have acute perinicchia, it's going to look like any other acute soft tissue infection. You're going to have edema, erythema, purulent drainage, and typically a lot of pain. If it's chronic, there might be some erythema, but it's going to be much milder. There's typically no purulent drainage, and pain is variable. Maybe not so much pain either. But again, you see the management, and we'll talk about it under interventions. If possible, you're going to lift and trim the nail. And a lot of times when you lift and trim the nail, you get purulent fluid draining out because the edge of the nail is embedded in the soft tissue, which is surrounded by the purulent fluid collection. So I'm going to see, can I lift and trim without causing this person a lot of pain? Sometimes I can, see if I can show you, I can kind of put pressure against the base of the nail while I lift the corner and trim and file. But I will tell them up front, I'm going to see if I can lift this out for you. But if it's too painful, we're going to stop and I'm going to send you to the podiatrist. So you have to follow the patient's lead. If I'm able to lift it, trim it, file it, and any purulent fluid has drained, 
Then I will clean it well and dress it with an antimicrobial like triple antibody ointment or whatever and a Band-Aid, and I'll still send them to the podiatrist for definitive treatment. But if I can do the initial lift and trim and file, it will provide them with a lot of uh, pain relief. And of course, if I have an active perinicchia, I've got to get them into podiatry so they can treat the soft tissue infection. I will mention if you're not able to get them into podiatry quickly and you have perinicchia, that you can send them to their primary care because their primary care will at least get them on antibiotics and probably will help expedite the referral to podiatry. A couple of uh, other things, subungual keratoma, what does that mean? That's just a callus underneath the nail. You will see this a lot. You see it in the slide on top. So you've got thickened callus skin right under the nail to the point you can't tell where the callus skin ends and the nail begins. So you have to pair the callus before you can trim the nail. And you start very cautiously, one layer at a time. Wipe frequently with an alcohol swab because when you wipe with an alcohol swab, the callus stays yellow, the nail stays yellow, healthy intact skin turns normal skin color. So your alcohol wipes can be very helpful. Subungual melanoma you may never see, but if you see anything like this, you definitely want to make sure you refer the patient. So it looks like a brown black band in the nail, um, or it can spread from the nail to the skin. Now, you do want to, if you're dealing with um, African-American clients, you need to differentiate from what they call longitudinal melanonychia, which is a black band from the proximal nail fold to the free border, um, and that's benign. So if you have any concerns, if you're not sure, you don't sit around, you refer the patient and you say, I just wanted this patient assessed for this questionable lesion. I always refer, if I'm not positive that it's benign, I'm not gonna risk it. Um, pterygium is just abnormal adherence of the skin at either the proximal or the distal end of the nail. Um, here you've got it at both the proximal and distal end of the nail. The main thing is it's really hard to identify the free nail border, hard to safely trim the nail because it's stuck down. So you have to be very careful. And if you can't trim, just file. Um, callus of the distal end of the nail. Remember that anytime you have callus on the distal end extending up to the hyponychium, you are going to pair to the point that you can identify the free nail border. And then you're gonna look at their footwear. Why are they getting a callus on the distal end of the toe? Obviously their shoe is not long enough and so that toe is constantly rubbing. So they need to have their shoes professionally fitted to assure adequate length and width of the toe box. 
Um, splinter hemorrhages are very different than melanoma. This is caused by trauma. So what happened is, you know, you caught your finger in the door or dropped something really heavy on your toe, and now you have what looks like a splinter underneath your nail, but you're pretty sure you didn't get a splinter. That is just a localized hemorrhage um, into the nail bed. And you don't have to do anything. You just watch it and it'll grow out. So when I see that, because I'm like, okay, I see this black line, I want to make absolutely sure I don't have to worry about melanoma, I'm going to say, have you had any trauma to this nail? Subungual hematoma, a lot of you have had this. It's a clot that forms between the nail bed and the nail plate due to significant trauma. It's typically very painful. And so probably most of you know the trick about taking a gem clip and hitting one end and then just drilling a little hole to let the blood out, which sounds so scary, but immediately relieves the pain. Onychomedesis and onycholysis. I know you're tired of onycho at this point. Um, onychomedesis is separation of the nail plate from the nail matrix at the proximal end of the nail. That's where the nail matrix is. And that's due to injury or illness. So you just see the nail lifting at the proximal end around the cuticle. Nothing really to be done about it. Um, you can just explain it if you see that. Just explain it to the patient. Um, onycholysis is separation of the nail plate at the distal end, and it's almost always due to fungal infection. And that's what you see in the slide on bottom. And it's why sometimes when you're managing fungal nails, the whole thing comes off is because you have separation of the nail plate from the underlying nail bed as a result of the fungal infection. And onychomycosis. Um, you will definitely have questions about onychomycosis, and you will definitely have a lot of clients with onychomycosis. Also, sometimes known as tinea unguium, but I really haven't seen that term used a lot. But this is just fungal infection of the nail bed, nail plate, or both. Um, it's actually the causative factor for more than 50% of nail disorders in your older adults. It makes nails look really, really ugly. They're thick, they're discolored, they're crumbly, but there's no significant morbidity. Nothing terrible is gonna happen, they just look bad. Now, for some people that doesn't bother them, other people it bothers them a lot and that impacts on your decisions about treatment. What are the risk factors? Just what you would expect for a fungal infection. Uh, living with a lot of other people in a small area, walking barefoot in moist areas like gyms, pools, showers, not drying well between your toes after bathing. Now, okay, I want to be sure I didn't miss anything. We've already talked about how onychomycosis presents, and I'm betting you've all seen it. 
where you have discolored nails. They can be white, brown, yellow, some god-awful combination of those three. They're almost always thickened and crumbly or brittle. Sometimes when you're thinning them, you'll have a little piece of nail that flies off because they're brittle and separating. We talked about separation from the nail bed, the onycholysis. Now, occasionally you'll have what they call leukonychia mycotica, and that's just white discoloration of the nail bed, and it's caused by a superficial fungal infection that usually responds pretty well to topical treatment. Diagnosis, uh, we don't usually do any diagnostic tests. We look at it, it looks like fungus, it acts like fungus, we call it fungus, and that's it. But if you wanna make sure, you can do nail scrapings and send it for culture. And what the patient wants to know is how do we treat it? You've got two choices, topical therapy or systemic therapy. Now remember, there's no associated morbidity. It's a cosmetic issue. So a lot of individuals elect topical therapy because it's so bland, so safe, um, no risk with topical therapy. So you could either, you can start out by using um, a urea compound to the nails to help thin the nails so that you can then nip them effectively or you can use personal protective equipment and a grinder to thin the nails, or a coarse emery board, and then clip. And then you want to try to get the new nail to grow out fungus-free. There's no effective way to treat the existing nail um, effectively. You mainly are treating the nail matrix where new nail is originating. So common recommendations are to use a menthol rub or tea tree oil and apply it to the cuticle every day for a year so that the new nail grows out fungus-free. And it's because the menthol and the rub are, and ingredients in the tea tree oil will penetrate along the cuticle and destroy the fungus in the nail matrix. Um, some clinicians represent or recommend this cyclopyrox 8% lacquer applied daily for seven days, so that's another option. Systemic therapy, of course, we've all heard about systemic therapy for nail fungus. You can use azoles or alilamines. Cure rates aren't that impressive, 35 to 70%, and you have to take it for up to a year. Sometimes they'll do cycles of therapy. But across the board, you need to monitor liver function because it can have uh, side effects, including hepatic damage. So that's why the trend is topical therapy and not systemic therapy. Um, some podiatrists might recommend a combination. So a lot of conditions that affect the skin, the soft tissues, and the nails. You need to be very familiar with all of these because this is what you're gonna see in practice. This is what you need to be able to explain to your patients 
You need to be able to recommend appropriate treatment and know when to refer. So that's the end of this one, and the next one we'll move on to assessment and management. Thank you.